Well, it's good to be together today, and uh, I didn't have to climb anything to get up, you know, where I am right now or anything like that. The uh, partition that is between us and the uh, the stage there is um, mostly about safety because, like, right now there's some holes in the old platform that uh, we wouldn't want anybody to fall through and get hurt. But um, you probably heard the saying that if you're going to make a cake, you have to break some eggs, right? So we've been breaking some eggs over there. <laughs> there may be splinters and nails, and just be careful if you venture back there. And uh, But it's um, a mark of progress, and so appreciate the hard work. Man, there's been some uh, people that have come over here and, and uh, put out a lot of effort over the last few days to get us so that we could worship in the way that we are today. Really grateful for that and for the media team. You know, spent a lot of time over here basically all day yesterday working really hard. Very grateful for that. I do. I did want to say um, some folks had mentioned to us that they'd like to see um, the detailed breakdown of our budget, and we will definitely email that out this week to uh, folks. It's, um, you know, provided that way so you can see line items and have the opportunity to see where your uh, giving goes. And uh, if you would turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter number 3, and we want to look at just a couple of verses there. It's been a little while since we were in 1 Corinthians. We left off to uh, celebrate the Lord's birth and look at some Advent messages, but this is where we uh, left off is in 1 Corinthians chapter number 3, and we're going to look at just two uh, verses there, verse 10 and 11. And the Bible says in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10, 11, I hope you'll find that either in your Bible or on your device and follow along. It says, according to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the Bible. Thank you for the for our Savior. Thank you for the way you've revealed your life and self to us so that we could know you. And I thank you for this group of uh, Christ's followers or those that are seeking and interested who have gathered here. Lord, that you might speak to us from your, uh, from your word. And we pray, God, that you would uh, just show us your will, help us to understand your purposes as you've, as you've revealed it. And we love you. We thank you for the great kindness and love that you've shown us in Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen. We, we'll at least look at one uh, week of this idea because I think there's a, lot, there's a lot more we could say. But the scripture passage we're going to look at is found, foundational. It talks about Jesus as the foundation. And, um, you know, what came to mind for me in my preparation is uh, elementary school. You remember elementary school? When you showed up there, and they, what did they teach you right off? ABCs, right? You learned a song even to recite the alphabet or then whole numbers, right? They taught you to count and to add and subtract. But on the first day of school, they didn't give you like Tolstoy and say, here's war and peace. I want you to read like four or five chapters, and you're going to have to give a report on that or Dostoevsky or something like that. Uh, they just said, like, here's the alphabet, you need to learn it, 
And the reason is because it's foundational to everything else. And when we think about the, what the scripture says here about Jesus, it's the same idea. There's a basic uh, place that we start out. You know, you didn't go to school in first grade and they say, okay, uh, tomorrow we're going to do calculus or trigonometry. No, it started like very basic and fundamental. And so that opens up a whole world for you of other things. I've been reading a novel uh, called A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. And uh, occasionally I'll just either ask people or try to find what someone else has identified as classic literature and read good novels. It's a really good novel. It focuses on a poor family in the uh, early 1900s in Brooklyn, New York. And there's a little girl who's really the focal point of the novel. Her name is Francie. And um, it just talks about, you know, how difficult life was. And yet they had a, a standard and a purpose in their family that they tried to instill into um, the, the children, particularly the mother in this story. And it talks about her going to school, learning the alphabet. And for the first time in her life, the jumble of letters coalesced into a sentence. And then from a sentence, a paragraph, and from a paragraph, you know, stories. It just opens a vista in a person's life when we get those foundational things in place, grammar. And so I'm not here to teach you about English or math. I definitely couldn't teach you about math. But to say there is a foundation that we have to lay. If we don't lay this, nothing else is going to open up to us. And that's what the scripture shows us about Jesus Christ. When Paul wrote to this church at Corinth, he said, you've got to get this foundation right. Over, you know, uh, in a couple of weeks, we'll look at what we build up on the foundation of Christ. But the scripture tells us you've got to have this in place. And there's a basic and crucial component to our faith. It's the linchpin that if it is uncoupled, everything else will fall apart. This is the linchpin, Jesus, and who he is. There are two places that the Bible says something pretty close to the same thing. In Second uh, Peter chapter 1, verse 10, the Bible says, Therefore, brethren, be diligent or very careful to make your calling and election sure. It says, be very careful, careful to make your calling and election sure. In other words, make sure that this reality for you, it, it resonates as, uh, as something that's true in your own experience and in your own life, that you know who Christ is according to Scripture and that you yourself are, are living as him, uh, with Him as your Lord. So be diligent, it says, to make your calling and election sure. Make very sure that this foundational thing is right in your life. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, it says something very similar. It says, examine yourselves. It says, give yourself essentially a spiritual examination to see whether you are in the faith, it says. To see if you're in the faith. In the faith, test yourselves. And it, and it, it says, do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test, it says. The, the way that we pass the test is by understanding 
that Christ is in us. That's what makes a person a authentic Christian, a follower of Jesus. But the Bible says you and I ought to examine our life, scrutinize, take a close look, and make sure that the profession that we have has a genuine faith that answers to it. Not that we just uh, call ourselves a Christian, but that there's a there's a inner uh, reality that, that's true about us. So it's interesting when we think about putting ourselves to a spiritual test that the Scripture shows us there are really some objective markers. When we look at the church in the book of Acts, we notice that there were specific truths about them that were objective. They are not subjective. They're objective. They're things that uh, were markers that a person could say, okay, that is what Christianity looks like when it's active and real in people and among uh, groups of people. And so that's what I want to think about in this message today are really three objective realities that if you were to put your life to, A test. If you want to make your calling and election sure, if you want to examine yourself, these are some of those realities. Just some, there are a lot more, but I think these are crucial. And the first uh, objective reality, a question that will help us to understand whether it's active and present and true about us, is, is this. Is your hope in Christ alone? Is your hope in Christ alone? It's what we notice about biblical Christians is that their hope was securely anchored into Christ. John 14, we'd be familiar with, it's where Jesus says, Let not your heart be troubled. He says, You believe in God, believe also in me. He says, In my Father's house are many rooms or many mansions. And if it weren't so, he says, I would have told you. And he says, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am there you may be also. And Thomas, that we call Doubting Thomas, you remember he speaks up and he says, we don't know where you're going and how can we know the way. And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. He he was the the place that the person, that people's faith was in alone. He said, there is no other way. There aren't many ways to God. There's one way. God himself came into this world and allowed himself to be crucified because there's one way to God, not multiple ways. And Jesus says, I am that way, me, myself. And and the disciples heard that, and when they preached, this is what they said. In the book of Acts, in chapter 4, verse 12, they said, when they stood up before the uh, public in the Sanhedrin, the council, and, and where they, these same people had put together a scheme to have Jesus crucified, those disciples who knew that that happened stood up before the public and they said, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven, given among men by which we must be saved. They said there's one saved, there's one way to God, and it is through Christ alone. And he has to be the location, the
Thank you. We're, uh, that's breaking eggs, making cakes. But uh, we'll figure things out. But uh, the disciples were incarcerated. They went to jail, and while they were uh, in jail, the at one point, remember, Peter's miraculously released, but that rather than deny Christ, rather than when they were told, hey, shut up, we don't want you talking about Jesus in public anymore, they said, we'll go to jail, or worse, because they knew what could happen. So they, uh, the disciples kept preaching Jesus publicly, and they were uh, threatened. And at one point, you remember that Peter says, uh, you'll have to decide whether we should obey God or man, but as for us, we can't help but talk about the things that we've seen and heard. They said, we're not going to shut up. You can't shut us up. You can lock us up, but you can't shut us up. You can incarcerate us. You can beat us. You can kill us, but you can't make us stop telling the truth. They knew what the truth was. They had seen it and experienced it, and they lost family, and they lost jobs, but they held on to Jesus because they said there's no hope anywhere else. It's the same thing where Peter says uh, to, to Jesus when the crowds uh, thinned out and uh, Jesus had said a very hard saying and he turned to the disciples and he says, are you going to go away and leave me too? And he says, where else can we go? You have the words of life. And, and they, they knew that there was not salvation in anyone else and they would not deny Christ. Their life was drilled down into him as their, as their hope. You know, sometimes uh, today we get concerned about religious freedom in our nation, and we get concerned about threats to Christianity. I, I listened to a podcast recently, Russell Moore, who I enjoy a lot uh, as a writer and thinker, and he worked for a long time uh, among po- politicians as a uh, an observer and a sort of public theologian. That's his title now. But he said, routinely what you're seeing happen in America is the opposite of what most people think, that time and time again when the Supreme Court decides about religious freedom, that they always decide with the Constitution, which, you know, supports the concept of uh, religious freedom. So we continue to have pluralism, and each person worships according to the conscience, uh, their conscience, and each person is free to leave their home and go to the public place of worship. And, you know, it may come uh, a point in time where those we're threatened and our liberties are taken away. But he says what we see right now routinely is that each time something goes to the Supreme Court, religious liberty is upheld over and over again. But here's what I thought about earlier. It's like I think the greatest threat to the church in our day is not cultural and it's not political, it's not the left or something like that, it's us. It's our lack of passion for Christ. You know, when I look at at these people, they would be arrested for their faith. They were outspoken. Their, Their faith went with them everywhere they went, and it was obvious who they belonged to and what they stood for. So, you know, before we wring our hands very much about the threats that are all around us, we might look for the threat within us. You know, where are we? Are we nominal? Are we passionate? Are we sold out? You know, because what I notice sometimes is it feels like in this day, 
church feels like a hobby for people that they do if nothing else is there to do. And that's not what I see in the first century. I see people who were sold out, whose, whose lives were all about Jesus. So a good question for us is we think, man, is my faith authentic? Is it real, genuine? Does it line up to what you saw in the uh, first century would be to say, is, is it all about Jesus? Is my faith, is my hope, is my security and eternity in Jesus only? And if we answer that in the affirmative, then that's, that's good. You know, we're examining ourselves, we're passing the test. But also in this passage, we see that the, a good question to answer as we think about the foundation of our life is where is it? You know, what are we dependent on for uh, hope? Is, is, is your confidence in the flesh? I know flesh in this respect, uh, for those of us who are in church, is common, but not, not always. And this is basically an idea in the Bible that would be the same thing as, say, in self-reliance. Am I relying on myself? Am I dependent on me, my works, my goodness? Am I dependent on my effort? And Paul said when he gave his testimony, it's fascinating. Here's a person with a religious pedigree, a spiritual resume second to none. You know, he, he wouldn't be embarrassed if he listed his religious accomplishments. But when he did that, he's like, I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees, a Benjamite you know, circumcised the eighth day like all good Jews. You know, everything that was to his credit, he said, I count it as dung, rubbish, garbage, so that I might know Christ. He said, the things that might be of credit to me, I've come to consider them as a liability. Because if I depend on those things and not on Jesus, that's what they are. They're a liability. They're an impediment to salvation. So when, you know, a person examined their life, we might ask, what, what is it that I'm dependent on? Is, have I made some list of accomplishments that I, I think, you know, I've had lots of spiritual conversations with people over the years. And what you find out is if you were to ask someone, do you know for certain that you have eternal life and you go to heaven when you die? You know, you get a lot of works answers from people about why they think God should allow them uh, to go to heaven or to be in relationship with him. But but the Bible says our it's not of works of righteousness that we've done, but according to his mercy that he saves us. There's not a list that you can write out, bring to God, and he, he's going to check all the boxes, and that's the basis of it. Our self-effort is an impediment if that's what we depend on. It keeps us from grace. The Bible says, when the kindness and love of God, our Savior toward man, appeared. Listen to what it says here. Not by works of righteousness, which we've done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, and having been justified by his grace, we should be heirs according to the hope of eternal life. I love that passage of Scripture. It clarifies for me things. It's a struggle sometimes. I'm just like everybody else, I think, as I try to understand what it means to be a person of faith. Sometimes I, I get, uh, I take a wrong turn, and I, I think of, that my performance is wrapped up in it somehow. 
And the reality is, yeah, it is. I mean, does it matter that I serve the Lord? Does it matter that I gather with other people to worship? It does matter, but it's not the basis of my relationship with God. The basis of any person's relationship with God properly understood is that we put our confidence in Jesus. You know, the the service, the good works that we do, they honor the Lord. They tell the story that, uh, you know, like we talked about last week, he's trying to tell through our lives, but they're not what put us in relationship with him. It is surrender. It's recognizing that we're inadequate, that we're not enough. And that because we're not enough, we turn to the one who was completely and thoroughly just. And he took on himself our deficiency, our sin, our inadequacy. And he bore it, the weight of all of our junk in the cross. And so if we ever get confused and we start thinking, I haven't done this, I haven't done that. Well, you know, God loved you before you'd done a single good thing. And God demonstrated his love toward you while you were a sinner. Christ died already for the ungodly. So if we could loose ourselves from that junky baggage, I think we'd be so much freer to worship and to know God and to be intimate and to grow closer to him. And I I know that's his purpose, is for us to get out of our mind the idea that somehow our self-reliance has given us some sort of status with God. It, It never can, it never will. But when the Apostle Paul wrote about that, that's what he said, the things that were gained to me, these I've counted loss for Christ, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and uh his righteousness, which is through faith in Christ. That's how you get God's righteousness. It's by faith. It's by stopping your striving, ceasing, and and resting in him. That list of things that you've got, set fire to it, tear it up, throw it away. It's not the pathway. The only pathway is through him and what he did for you. It's not what you do. It's what Jesus did already. That's hope. That's life. So when we think about what does it mean to be an authentic follower of Christ, it's hoping in his name alone. It's dependent on his work alone, not yours and not mine. And then also this morning, a question to ask is, have you become a part of the body of Christ? Thirdly, have you become part of the body of Christ? Well, if you have turned to him as a follower of Jesus and repented and placed your faith in him, the Bible says automatically God places you in the body of Christ. You are in his, in his body. That's what happens. It's what God does in the miracle of regeneration. He puts us into his body. And when the Bible talks about the bride of Christ, as it does, you know, if you were to I don't know. Sometimes when I'm doing my own study, I Google a lot of stuff. I use Google a lot. And uh, it speeds up um, finding verses. I've got a, a concordance this thick. And this is how you used to look things up before Google. Okay? It was these old 1,500-page um, concordances. But, you know, I can put it in there and I can see all the times that the Bible talks about the bride of Christ. Who is that? That's you, that's me. It's us collectively, the people that belong to him. And God does that automatically. When you become a follower of Christ, he puts you in his body. You become a member. 
you become you know part of who he is and the bible will use that phrase the bride of christ or it may talk about being in christ and it reflects that this this truth well the church you know that that means that you're part of the church if you belong to jesus you're already part of the church because the church is his body it's people a movement you know we're going to uh do things here this property is a place that we gather and worship but when we gather and worship we're the we're the church not this building us the people that bring his spirit with us here you know i've said before if a tornado came through heaven forbid and wiped this building or other buildings off of property people could still gather as the church because the church is who you are it's who God is living in us and the gathering of people. That's why it's a movement. And, and it's, that's what it looked like, I think, originally for people. It's, it's important, I think, for us to have a place. It's helpful. But we're the church. So when we think about the church, it, because it's people, will it frustrate and disappoint you sometimes? Yes, of course. Do you frustrate and disappoint yourself sometimes? Only the honest people, right? The honest people say, yeah, I frustrate myself and disappoint myself all the time. I come short of my own expectation. How do I expect other people, you know, to always meet my expectation and not disappoint and hurt me? I remember reading an article one time that talked about, they called it an APE. I used to read a periodical called um, Leadership Journal a lot. It was put out by Christianity Today. APE, anxiety-provoking event is what it meant, APE. And and it was just talking about things that happen to people in the context of local church life, anxiety-provoking events, things that we say it may be dumb or something that happened that was hurtful. We'll be disappointed and frustrated because here's why. There's no way to bring a group of people together anywhere who – are unique because each person is unique you're every single one of us is unique and different in some in some way here are a lot of the ways that we're different we're, well we're the same in this way that we're all flawed we're, we all have that in common but we've been shaped and molded by particular experiences and hurts in our life some some things that happen to people in their development as kids ways that our family broke up, things that happened when we were vulnerable and young. And, you you know, things happen to people in in life. That's reality. Every single one of us have had, and maybe it's not the disappointments we think about, it's the successes, the way our family nurtured and helped us. Maybe that's your story. Social experiences that we have had, how we learned to think about other people, whether it was utilitarian pragmatic or whether we grew to see people more spaciously and graciously but everybody's got some experience of life that they've brought to their connection with other people your interests are different i've got a lot of interest and and hobbies and uh, we come from different families family groups then you get married and you you've got two family groups that you're trying to hold uh, together and, and, you know, sometimes intention and, you know, making all that stuff work out. 
We have priorities. Your priorities are not going to be the same as my priorities. You know, vocationally we're different. You know, people come from different experiences and training, education level. Some people, you know, uh, were blue-collar. That's where they went, you know, right out of high school. Some people went on, did more, you know, and, and that was suited to them. Some people, you know, all of us are living in some limitation, right? I mean, if you thought about your life very much, you'd know that there's some some limit that you have. You can't drive a five-speed. I can. Something like that. I don't know. I know that's weird. But people have limitations. People have aspirations. You know, there are things that you want. There are goals that you have. You have dreams. And within that... There is always going to be something that makes it hard for you to be a community just because of all that stuff. And the only way that any of it works is because of Jesus. He is the cement that holds community together. There is nothing that would keep all of that stuff from driving people nutty if it were not for who Jesus is. He's the, he's the commonality. He's at the center of it all. Christ in us. Christ in the Lord's table. Christ in his commands and in our obedience. That's what binds us together. Christ forgiving you. Christ commanding you to forbear and forgive. That's what binds every uh, one of us together in, in his body. There's no way this experiment works without Jesus. He's, he is the loving center of every bit of it. Without Jesus, this whole enterprise collapses. Not this one, all of them, all the churches. The only thing that keeps them together is him. That he, he said in John chapter 15, verse 5, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Abide in me and I in you. He says, and if, uh, whoever abides in me will be fruitful, bear much fruit. But apart from me, he says, you can do nothing. He, he keeps us together. Hebrews chapter 12, verse, uh, verses 1 and 2 say, that talks about laying aside the weight and the sin that so easily entangles us and running with endurance the race that's marked out for us. And it says, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of God. But I love the, if you isolate a part of that passage, here's what it says. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Don't get frustrated by the fact that all the people that are sitting in the pew beside you or the chair beside you are imperfect. We all are. And we'll disappoint each other. Hopefully hopefully it's not egregious. Hopefully it's not abusive. If it comes to that, of course, that's sinful and wrong. But the, the truth is, what we've all got to do all the time is keep looking to Jesus. Keep our eyes on him. And, and if we do that, we, we grow in understanding. You know, I've been a follower of Christ long enough now to know that you go through seasons where it feels just really hard and difficult to be in church and to be, be a part of this experiment. 
but he's who uh, keeps it together. Church isn't something we go to, it's who we are. It's, it's our new innate identity. That's how you know that you have started with the ABCs and with the whole numbers and the foundational thing is right is because you got connected to something that you didn't have in your identity before. Now it is in your identity. It's the church. It's the body of Christ. You're one of the members. And when it talks about members, it's not just talking about writing your name on a piece of paper. It's saying Jesus grafted you spiritually into something powerful that happens because you're redeemed and made different by him. And he sets us loose and puts us on mission in the world. That's what he's doing. It binds us in mission and in sacrifice. And I love this verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. I guess as much as anything, it's probably a, a, something I'd call a life verse. But it says, For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that if one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Again, if you isolate a really important part of that passage, it says that when God called you through Jesus, he didn't call you to live for yourself anymore. He didn't call you to live just for your own uh, pursuits and your own goals and aspirations. He calls us to follow him in obedience. And so the love of Christ compels us because we judge this, that if Christ died, then we died along with him. We died to the things that we did before, and we, and we keep pursuing Jesus, and we, we make him our Savior and our Master. So if we ever are going to get life right, it begins with Jesus, or else we just have useless religion, and useless uh, because it's a spiritual barrier to real life. Religion is useless if it's not about Jesus because it becomes an impediment, a barrier to real life. Real life is in Jesus. And, and so if, if what we have is self-effort, that's not saving. If all we have is religion, we miss out on the sweetness of Jesus himself. And if the faith we have is not opening up new vistas of freedom in our life, then we have something other than the life that Jesus promised. Because he said, I have come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. He says, whoever has the Son is free indeed. And we have the truth that comes through Jesus and it sets us free. And so we're, we're, if we're not constantly having new vistas of freedom open to us, then we, we need to go back to Jesus and see what he's about. It's a little odd to think that spirituality could be examined, I think, because we think of it as ethereal and metaphysical, right? We think religion is a little subjective feeling, but not when you look at what it looked like in the lives of people in the Bible. In the Bible, what you could see is that it was objective. It meant particular tangible things for them. So I think that's why we can say to ourselves, I should examine myself to see, am I in the faith? Is Jesus in me? 
if Christ is in me, then it, he's gonna. There are gonna be. There's gonna be no more compelling thing in my life. And the Bible does plainly say, "Examine yourselves to see if you're in Christ. Is He manifesting His life through you? And if so, you pass the test. Congratulations. That's what it's about, according to the Scripture, that Jesus would be the central reality in our life. And so, that's the question: Are you part of Christ's body? Is this primary? Is it a, a first order? Is Jesus your master and your head? That's biblical language. Biblical language says when we follow Jesus, he's the master. We're the servant. He's the head. We're the body. We're part of, part of him, but he's the most important part. So he's the only foundation that any person can lay and build the life that God intends. We're going to have a, a song as we conclude our service today. And as you've listened, of course, the thing I'm trying to say to you is to examine your life today. To think, is my faith authentic? If it is authentic, here are the objective markers. It's in Christ only. It's not me thinking I'm doing uh, a series of things that hopefully at some point there's a tipping point and God will love me. No, God already loved you. But the question is, are you relying on yourself or on Christ? And then experiencing him through his, his body. So I'm going to invite you at this time to stand with us. And I'll be up front here for a few moments during our song. And if there's a need that you have to respond, I'd be happy to pray with you. Either during this uh, invitation time or at the conclusion of our service, be happy to talk with you and follow up. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the truth that Jesus Christ is living and